Good evening, everyone. From where I am, I must say good evening. Uh, I'm visiting here from central Tennessee. I, uh, I would like to start this evening with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to share with our friends that are visiting on the um, the program this evening and this seminar. I thank you, Lord, that uh, they are all here. We pray that you will bless them richly with your spirit and with your word. Uh, as I present this study that you have shared with me, I pray that it will truly be a help to all of those who are listening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, years ago, I went to college to study to be a medical missionary. I was um, very excited about mission work. I had spent two years in mission service as a student missionary. And in coming back to school, uh, I enrolled in theology and pre-med. It was during that time that I married and I had uh, fathered a couple children. And I realized very quickly that I had made a terrible mistake coming from the confusion I was in and going into that marriage. But I chose to have a Christian wife, to have a Christian family, to have a Christian home, to have a Christian education. Uh, choosing to get my degree in theology. And after several years, I graduated with that degree in theology with, uh, with honors, actually. But for some reason, I did not have answers for my own salvation. The confusion that I had dealt with all of my life since I was four years old when I was first introduced to sexual behavior and derailed as a child that confusion was so strong at that point, even with a degree in theology, I could not accept a call into ministry. And I, um, I knew that my marriage was going to be in big trouble, that I'd made a mistake. Upon graduating from college, I was given a call to ministry, but I turned it down because I just didn't feel worthy. Uh, I didn't have my own answers. And I certainly didn't feel that I could be a uh, successful pastor. Excuse me, an amber alert there interrupted me. But I did not feel that, um, that I could be a successful pastor if I didn't have the answers for my own salvation. And as I look back on that time in my life where I finally just gave up and went into the gay world and broke up my marriage and devastated my wife and my parents and hurt so many people. And I look back upon that time of my life and I realize, even with a degree in theology, I did not understand Jesus. I had a lot of Bible knowledge. I knew a lot about Jesus, but I didn't really understand him. I thought when I would read him, uh, his words say, be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I thought, wow, easy for you to say, you're God. You can be perfect. You lived without sin because you're God, and I'm not God, and you're asking of me something that is impossible. You know, I have a fallen human nature. I grew up sinning. I continue to sin. I, this is impossible. I just did not understand Jesus. But years later, I was desperate for answers. I remember turning to that little book, Steps to Christ. Now, many of you have heard the story. I couldn't really concentrate to read, so I sat down with a margarita in one hand and lit up a cigarette in the other hand and I had a sip and I had a puff and I opened the book, Steps to Christ. And friends, that's how I started my journey back to Jesus. 
And I learned so much about Jesus reading that beautiful book. And it cultivated a taste in me for spiritual things to where I could once again study the Bible, not for my professors, not to get the grades so that I could uh, graduate the top, you know, with top grades and get into medical school. I was studying for my survival. My life was one that was in a downward, inward spiral to self-destruction. And I knew that, that I needed to be rescued. I needed a savior. And as I began that journey, I began to see Jesus in a new light. I remember in chapter five, I put out a perfectly good cigarette because there's power in the word of God. And I realized I shouldn't be doing this while I'm reading the word of God. And I found so many answers to the point that that little book with, with scripture on every page cultivated, cultivated a taste for spiritual things in me that I had not had <clears throat> for many years. And I got to where I could study the Bible till two and three o'clock in the morning and, and just devour everything that I could find um, that, uh, you know, from the word of God. And I found, I found enough answers to where I could, could leave the gay culture. But you know, light is ever increasing. And this is what I love about the word of God, that as I study the word of God, I can read the same verse. I mean, how many times have you read John 3, 16? You don't even have to read it anymore. You just quote it. We've known that beautiful passage since childhood. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, <clears throat> that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And every time I quote it or read it, I have a new appreciation, a newer depth of understanding. Uh, that's just something so unique to the word of God that it, it, is, it is inexhaustible. It is like a bottomless well of living water and um, it will never run dry. And so as I continue to study, just recently, I came into, a, I think, like a new level of understanding that was so thrilling that um, I, I offered to share this study with the group this evening because it's, the question is, how do I overcome sin? How do I stop doing this uh, addictive behavior and participating in this addictive behavior? And that can be of any kind. Yes, I came out of the gay culture. So did Michael. Uh, you know, th those in our ministry, we come from LGBT backgrounds, but not all of us. Some of us were never in that background, but they were into pornography and, and what I call self-sex. Michael, forgive me for not using the M word. I just find that difficult. Self-sex. You know, some there are many forms of sexual addiction. <clears throat> And so we all have to come to the place where we say, you know, we're faced with that question, how can I overcome this, it's called besetting sin or this addiction? Well, I want to turn your attention to Revelation chapter three, verse 21. I don't know how many hundreds of times I have read this scripture. I have a whole series of sermons on the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation chapter two and three, the last one being the church of Laodicea. And recently I read this text and it had such a new um, depth of understanding or gave me such a new depth of understanding. I got so excited that I came up with this study that I'm sharing with you this evening. In um, Revelation 3 verse 21, Jesus is dictating this letter and he says, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Okay, that's nice. Well, how do I do that? <laughs> and then he says, even as I also overcame. Huh. So he's saying, Ron Woolsey, you can overcome even as I also overcame. Well, that got my wheels to really turning. And... I got so excited about what the Lord was revealing to me. So let's take a look at a few texts of scripture. 
Because like I said, when I graduated with my degree in theology, I did not know Jesus. So let's look at a few texts of scripture and, and let's see if you can figure out where I'm going with this. In Romans 1 verse 3, we read concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. According to the flesh. Okay, what does that mean? He was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Well, he was a descendant of David. He inherited tendencies from King David. And if you look at the heritage of Jesus in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, there are two places where you can read the lineage of Jesus. And my word, the despicable characters that were in his ancestry, not only David, the murderer, the adulterer, the man of war, uh, Abraham was a liar <laughs> in, in some cases, Jacob, the usurper, the deceitful one who became Israel. There was Rahab, the harlot. There was Ruth, the idolatrous, the Moabitess. King Manasseh, the bloodiest of all kings in Israel, was a part of Jesus' ancestry. And this text is saying concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, let's look at Jesus Christ, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. He inherited from his ancestry. Now, that's kind of sobering because a lot of Christians today think that Jesus came in the nature of Adam before he ever sinned. And that's the understanding I had when I left the Lord, thinking that it was just unjust for him to, to expect me to live according to Adam before sin, because I was fallen. But this is made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, not Adam, not Abraham, not Isaac or Jacob, all the way down to David. Now turn also with me to Revelation, I mean, not Revelation, the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And here we read, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. This text tells us that Jesus was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, some people say, well, if that's true, then he was a sinner. No, it's those who transgress the law that are sinners, not those who are subject to temptation, right? So reading on in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of the time was come, when the prophecies of the Messiah were to be fulfilled, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. And I go, hmm, what does that mean, made under the law? Well, the next phrase helps me understand to redeem them that were under the law. In other words, like me. I was born under the law. I mean, I was born with sinful, fallen human nature. Uh, and so it says here, Jesus was sent forth, made of a, of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. He was like me in, in nature. And then if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, I mean chapter 2, uh, in the context of verses 14 to 18. And this to me is a way that the writer highlighted, verbally highlighted. He didn't have a yellow marker, but he highlighted with words. Listen to the highlights, the underscoring. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Notice, he also himself likewise. Do you see the underscoring there? The writer is trying to really make the point. Jesus understands you. He was like you in, in, in his humanity. Uh, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Uh, that's me. <laughs> uh, 
For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Notice it doesn't even say he took on him the seed of Adam because that could, that is so close to Adam's uh, nature before he sinned. People could look at that and say, well, see, he's, he was like Adam before sin. But no, he says he took on him the seed of Abraham. None of the seed of, uh, seed of Abraham ever lived without sinful nature. And then it goes on, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And notice, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or to give assistance to them that are tempted. Oh, I just, I love that passage. And, you know, I read this, these texts about Jesus' nature when I was in the gay world, and they gave me a hope that I never had when I was studying theology. I, I, it's just amazing to me. But that's why, friends, we're to study for ourselves. We're to be like Bereans, uh, that we receive the word with all readiness of mind, Acts 17, 11, but then we search the scriptures for ourselves, whether those things are so. Now, there's a beautiful commentary here uh, from Manuscript 80 in 1903, over 100 years ago. It says, Christ assumed our fallen nature and was subject to every temptation to which man is subject. Now, does that lessen my opinion of Jesus? Does that... Um, lessen my respect for him? No. It shows that he came down to where I am in order to lift me up. Um, years ago, there was this little girl in Texas that fell down a well, and it was such a tight hold. They couldn't get down to her. The only way they could was to drill another hole parallel to that well and go down to where she was. And the rescue team had to go down to where she was and drill across and pull her out that way. And I see this the way Jesus, the, G, the way Jesus is. He came down to where I am in order to reach me, to lift me up and to pull me out of my terribly fallen uh, state of being. Uh, in another pamphlet, uh, we read though Christ had no taint of sin upon his character. You see, character is determined by our choices and our behavior. And Christ had no taint of sin upon his character. Yet he condescended to connect our fallen human nature with his divinity. By thus taking humanity, he honored humanity. Having taken our fallen nature, he showed what it might become, what our fallen nature might become by accepting the ample provision he has made for it, and by becoming partaker of the divine nature. So if we become partaker of divine nature, then we can live the way he did when he was in his divine nature, becoming a partaker of fallen nature. He stooped down to take fallen nature upon himself to bring us up, to help us take divine nature upon ourselves to where we can meet our temptations and tendencies successfully. And in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, and this is a beautiful text, it says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And that's an issue that we, from the LGBT community, are certainly familiar. We are very familiar with that. So we have these exceeding great and precious promises. It reminds me of an article that I have in, in one of my books, The Straight Answers to the Gay Question, that uh, is called A Rainbow of Promises, in which I have promise after promise after, after promise written out, because these, as I read through those promises, I realize 
I become a partaker of divine nature by reading these promises, understanding them, believing them, accepting them, uh, digesting them, assimilating them, and they become a part of me. And there is divine recreative power in the word of God. In Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, we read, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That is an amazing revelation about Jesus Christ, that he was in all points tempted like as me, yet without sin. Let us, well, let me just pause there. I had a conversation with a theologian years ago about this nature of Christ, and he was trying to share with me that, you know, this other view that Jesus never had fallen human nature. And I, it disturbed me because, in essence, what he was sharing was taking away from me my Savior. And so I said, no, wait, wait, wait a minute. In Hebrews 4, it says he was in all points tempted like as me, yet without sin. And then I told him where I came from in my background. And he looked at me in shock and even disgust. He said, you don't mean to think you think Jesus was tempted like that, do you? That's disgusting. Well, it is disgusting, isn't it? And yet, that text belongs to me. I claim it. And I don't try to imagine every thought that Satan put in Jesus' head. But I turned to him and I said, listen, how do you think he was tempted? Like you? Well, maybe I find that disgusting. This text says he was tempted like as we are in all points like we, like you and like me. You may find my temptations disgusting. I may find yours disgusting. But the point is, Jesus can relate to you and me. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come boldly under the throne of grace, the throne of power, divine omnipotent power. And that reminds me of the story of, um, of this man, and I don't, I, I don't have all the details correct. Uh, uh, I, well, I just don't have all of the details. But this is the way I remember the story. This, this man went to the White House trying to visit President Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War because his son had been accused and tried and convicted of desertion or treason or something. I think probably desertion. You know, there are a lot of just young boys that were fighting in the Civil War. And you can understand that, that they might become frightened and run. But the father, thinking about his poor young son about to be executed for desertion, he tried to get in to see the president. Now, they didn't have the barriers around the White House back then that they do now. But the security was there, and they would not let him in. And he begged. He said, I must see the president. I have to see the president. No, you cannot see the president. And in futility, he went out into the yard, and he sat under a tree, and he was weeping over the fact that his son was about to be executed for treason or desertion. Then he felt a tap on his shoulder. And he looked up and his little boy and his little face and his little voice said, sir, why are you crying? And he poured out his heart to this little boy, just blurting out what was happening and, and how he desperately wanted to see the president to get uh, his uh, absolution or something for his, his son so he would not be executed. And the little boy said, well, mister, I can take you to see the president. Come with me. So he took the man by the hand and led him to the same door where the security would not allow the man to go in. The door opened, the security just let them walk right on in, and he led the man right on upstairs. I went into the Oval Office, just right into the Oval Office and says, Daddy, this man really needs to talk to you. <laughs> it was President Lincoln's own son. And the president listened to the man's story and his son was spared. And I think about that when I read this text, come boldly under the throne of grace. 
God is our Father. He wants us to come. Jesus understands everything that we go through, and he wants us to come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We read in this, this book, it's a devotional book called Our High Calling, that Christ's overcoming and obedience is that of a true human being. In our conclusions, we make many mistakes because of our erroneous views of the human nature of our Lord. When we give to his human nature a power that it is not possible for man to have in his conflicts with Satan, we destroy the completeness of his humanity. His imputed grace and power he gives to all who receive him by faith. We go on to read the obedience of Christ to his father was the same obedience that is required of man. Now that might be a little dis disheartening on at face value here, but we read on. Man cannot overcome Satan's temptations without divine power to combine with his instrumentality. So with Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus' humanity. He could lay hold of divine power. He came not to our world to give the obedience of a lesser God to a greater, but as a man to obey God's holy law. And in this way, he is our example, meaning we too can lay hold of divine power, just as Jesus did. Jesus did not use his divinity for himself. He depended upon the divinity given to him through the Holy Spirit. And he spent whole nights in prayer praying that God would give him the strength and the courage to go forward and to be to live that victorious life. Reading on, the Lord Jesus came to our world not to reveal what a God could do, but what a man could do. Through faith in God's power to help in every emergency, man is, through faith, to be a partaker in the divine nature and to overcome every temptation wherewith he is beset. The Lord now demands that every son and daughter of Adam, through faith in Jesus Christ, serve him in human nature, which we now have. The Lord Jesus has bridged the gulf that sin has made. He has connected earth with heaven and finite man with the infinite God. Jesus, the world's redeemer, could only keep the commandments of God in the same way that humanity can keep them. We are not to serve God as if we were not human, but we are to serve him in the nature we have that has been redeemed by the Son of God through the righteousness of Christ. We shall stand before God pardoned and as though we had never sinned. The humanity of the Son of God is everything to us. It is the golden chain that binds our souls to Christ and through Christ to God. Again, that is our high calling, page 48. So let's look at this a little bit more closely. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Jesus was tempted in all points like as me, yet without sin. And I have to exclaim, how is that possible? If he was a human being, if he was like me, with a sinful human nature, how could he possibly live without sin? And then things began to click with me. In Luke 19, verse 10, we read, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Here we see Jesus' mission. When he accepted the role of our Savior, and he condescended to come to this earth as a human being in fallen human nature, he came on a mission to save that which was lost. Yes, he came to save this lost world, but he also came to save you individually and to save me individually. And I began to realize, because we know Jesus was severely tempted, his love for me, the object of his mission, was greater than his love for or temptation to sin. And we let that sink in a little bit. His love for me, his love for you, 
was greater than the power of temptation to sin. In other words, the power of Jesus' love for me far exceeded the power of Satan to tempt him. We read in 1 John 4, verse 4, For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So Jesus' love for me was so great. This is the way I'm understanding it. His love for me was so great that he could not be distracted by temptation to sin. You see, he did not focus upon himself and his own needs and his own desires, his own temptations. He focused on me because I was drowning. I'm putting it into today's uh, uh, context. I was drowning in sin and he's a lifeguard and he's focused on reaching me and saving me and he could not be distracted by anything else. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was that joy? Jesus went through that terrible incident, well, through his whole life, resisting temptation and sin, and especially in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, he stayed focused, friends. He focused upon this world being lost. He stayed focused upon you. He stayed focused upon me. We were the object of his love and the object of his mission. He would not be distracted. He put us ahead of his own life. The joy of being with you, the joy of being with me for all eternity. Um, those he loves for all eternity. There's no greater love than this. In John 15, 13, we read, greater, hath, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now we know according to 1 John 4, verse 8, God is love. And I do this like a little algebraic um, equation. God is love and God is omnipotent. So if God is love and God is omnipotent, then God's love must also be omnipotent. His perfect love exceeds the supernatural powers of Satan, temptation, and sin. You see, Satan does not love us. Satan hates us. And Satan, yes, he's supernatural. And in our fallen humanity, we are no match for the supernatural abilities of Satan. But God's love is more than supernatural. It's not just supernatural. It is all-powerful, omnipotent. His love far exceeds the supernatural powers of Satan and temptation and sin. In other words, the power of love exceeds the power of hate. And that's what we, what I understand reading that greater is he that is in me, love, than he that is in the world, hate and sin. So with this understanding, how am I to overcome sin? How do I apply this principle to myself? Because, you know, the myth is out there um, that once gay, always gay. If you're gay, you can never overcome homosexuality. You may stifle it, you may suppress it, but you'll always be gay. Um, well, that, that diminishes the, what, the power of, of God. It, 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 that belief portrays God as being impotent rather than omnipotent. Again, let's look at Revelation 3.21. To him that overcometh, even as I also overcame. So, if Jesus' love for me kept him from being distracted by temptation and sin, then maybe my love for him could do the same. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, 
that laser-like focus that God had and that Jesus had for me. Let that mind be in me, who Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Um, he humbled himself. He was found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So if my love for Jesus exceeds that of love of self and love of sin, then I too can be an overcomer. That's what I'm reading from this. When my focus is no longer on self first, then temptation loses its power. By beholding him, I will be changed into his image with his love for God supremely and others ahead of myself. Um, so I'll be changed into his image, loving God ahead of myself and others ahead of myself. And we read in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. So we have all of these wonderful promises and wonderful instruction on how to live the victorious life, how to overcome our besetting sin, our addiction, um, these considered to be unchangeable behaviors. So where I am asked to love God supremely and my neighbor is myself, Jesus loved me more than eternal life for himself. His love was for his father first and for me, and that kept him from yielding to temptation. Jesus' laser-like focus was upon those whom he sought to save. And when Satan would come to him, remember what Jesus said to him as Satan was trying to tempt him in the wilderness, get thee behind me, Satan. In other words, get out of my way. Don't distract me. I am focused. I have a mission. I'm on a mission of love, and, my, and that love is greater than your hate and greater than your power. Just get away. Leave me alone. Don't distract me. So my laser-like focus must be upon Jesus my savior from sin. And with that kind of focus, temptation, again, should lose its power. For I am not focused upon self, but upon Christ. Not focused upon self-satisfaction, but Christ's favor. favor. And not upon self-esteem, but Christ's reputation. Not upon self-advancement, but Christ's advancement. Not upon self-gratification, but Christ's pleasure not upon self-glorification, but the glory of Christ in and through myself. In Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11, it says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And notice, they love not their lives unto the death. You see, self-love has to go. We, if as we study Jesus, we will learn to love him kind of like he loves us. A selfless love that puts all of our temptations and desires on the back burner. In a letter, 236, 1908, there's this commentary that we become overcomers by helping others to overcome. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The keeping of the commandments of God will yield in us an obedient spirit, and the service that is the offspring of such a spirit, God can accept. Now, I want to take you to the Garden of Gethsemane. And let's take a look at the love of Jesus and the temptations that he endured just before the cross and see if that does not inspire us to love him more and to follow his example. In that beautiful book, Desire of Ages, page 686, as Christ felt his unity with the Father broken up, he feared that in his human nature he would be unable to endure the coming conflict with the powers of darkness. How often do we feel like in our human nature we cannot endure the conflict of temptation? 
Well, if Christ could be overcome, the earth would become Satan's kingdom and the human race would be forever in his power. With the issues of the conflict before him, Christ's soul was filled with dread of separation from God. See, he loved God supremely. Satan told him that if he became the surety for a sinful world, the separation would be eternal. You see, Satan took this mission upon himself personally to badger Jesus with temptation to wear him down to where he would finally succumb. And he told him he would be identified with Satan's kingdom and would never more be one with God. And what was to be gained by this sacrifice? How hopeless appeared the guilt and ingratitude of men in its hardest features Satan pressed the situation upon the Redeemer. The people who claim to be all, above all others in temporal and spiritual advantages have rejected you, he'd say. They are seeking to destroy you. The foundation, the center and seal of the promises made to them as a peculiar people. One of your own disciples who has listened to your instruction and has been among the foremost in church activities will betray you. One of your most zealous followers will deny you. All will forsake you. Christ's whole being abhorred the thought that those whom he had undertaken to save, those whom he loved so much, should unite in the plots of Satan. This pierced his soul. The conflict was terrible. Its measure was the guilt of his nation, of his accusers, accusers and betrayer the guilt of a world lying in wickedness. The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. Behold him contemplating the price to be paid for the human soul. In his agony, he clings to the cold ground as if to prevent himself from being drawn farther from God. Oh, my father, if it be possible, he cries, let this cup pass from me. In his humanity, he was shrinking in horror at what at, at this separation that was taking place. Yet even now he adds, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. You see, God first, himself. He was he was selfless. When we read, he emptied himself of self. Uh, it's just, what an example. He longed for sympathy. Jesus looked to his disciples for comfort, but they were sleeping. He, uh, he went to them for that comfort, but it says terrible was the temptation. How dark seemed the malignity of sin. He longed to know that they were praying for him. They weren't. They were sleeping. And then terrible was the temptation to let the human race bear the consequences of its own guilt while he stood innocent before God. I have to insert myself in that. Terrible was the temptation to let Ron bear the consequences of his own guilt while he stood innocent before God. That's quite a temptation. If he could only know that his disciples understood and appreciated this, he would be strengthened. But they were sleeping. Again, the Son of God was seized with superhuman agony and fainting and exhausted. He staggered back to the place of his former struggle. His suffering was even greater than before. As the agony of soul came upon him, his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. The cypress and palm trees were the silent witnesses of his anguish. From their leafy branches dropped heavy dew upon his stricken form, as if nature wept over its author, wrestling alone with the powers of darkness. A short time before, Jesus had stood like a mighty cedar. Now he was like a reed, beaten and bent by the angry storm. He had approached the consummation of his work a conqueror, now had come the hour of the power of darkness. Now his voice was heard on the still evening air, not in tones of triumph, but full of human anguish. The words of the Savior were borne to the ears of the drowsy disciples. 
Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. He again longed for comfort and encouragement from the disciples, but their eyes were heavy with sleep. Jesus went back to his retreat, fell prostrate, overcome by the horror of a gray darkness, the separation between him and the Father was taking place as he was becoming sin for us. We read the humanity of the Son of God trembled in that trying hour. He prayed not for his disciples that their faith may not fail, but for his own tempted, agonized soul. The awful moment had come, that moment which was to decide the destiny of the world. The fate of humanity trembled in the balance. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup apportioned to guilty man. It was not yet too late. He might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might say, let the transgressor receive the penalty of his sin, and I will go back to my father. Will the Son of God drink the bitter cup of humiliation and agony? Will the innocent suffer the consequences of the curse of sin to save the guilty? The words fall tremblingly from the pale lips of Jesus. Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Three times has he uttered that prayer. Three times has humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. But now the history of the human race comes up before the world's Redeemer. And notice this. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. He sees you, friends. He sees me. If left to ourselves, we would perish. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin. The woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise before him. He beholds its impending fate, and his decision is made. He will save man. He will save Ron and you at any cost to himself. He accepts his baptism of blood, that through him perishing millions may gain everlasting life. You see, friends, his his love was so great and, and his focus was so intense upon his mission and upon you and me and those he came to save. He would not be deterred from that mission no matter how Satan tempted him and badgered him with these thoughts that we are reading. He has left the courts of heaven where all is purity, happiness, and glory to save the one lost sheep, the one world that has fallen by transgression. And he will not turn from his mission. He will become the propitiation of a race that has willed to sin. His prayer now breathes only submission. If this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. In that book, Education, page 263, we read this startling statement. To me, when I read this, I was absolutely startled. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our Creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony. But that suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. The cross this one scene we're looking at in the Garden of Gethsemane and then the cross itself the next morning, the next day. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. Friends, when we read that God is long-suffering, he's been suffering over our condition, the world's condition, from the very beginning, for over 6,000 years, he's been suffering. What we see in Gethsemane and on the cross is just a peek at the suffering that Jesus has been enduring and God has been enduring 
for all of these thousands of years. And he simply says to you, friend, tonight and to me, if you love me, keep my commandments. He wants you to love him in return. God is love. He deeply desires for you to love him in the same way he loves you, with a selfless love that is so focused that you will not allow your tendencies and your temptations to distract you from the purpose for which God has called you. He wants to be with you and me for all eternity. Look how much he loves you. Look at how valuable you are in his sight that he would go to this great length to show you how much he loves you so that you will simply love him in return. Let us pray. Father in heaven, this kind of love is so foreign to us in our humanity. It is beyond our comprehension, and yet we can still appreciate it. And I suppose that as we study you more and come closer and closer to you, we can comprehend that love more and more each and every day. And I'm so thankful to learn that the power of love far supersedes the power of temptation and sin and the hate that comes from Satan. Love trumps hate. Lord, help us to love you to the point that we will not be distracted by our tendencies and our temptations and that we will overcome the accuser of the brethren by the blood of the Lamb as we've studied this evening and by the word of our testimony. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.